This week's treasure friend is In Poor Taste Pod. Eric and Sean meet twice a month in a pod floating down the, oh gosh, the Monongahela River, I think that's in Pennsylvania, to record distaste for one person to listen to. Will they get sued? Cancelled or generally assaulted? 25 minutes of goofs, 5 minutes of commercials, 25 minutes of goofs. You should totally listen and follow them at In Poor Taste Pod. Now, on to the show. Jerusalem, 160 BC. When the Maccabees stormed into the second temple of Jerusalem, they failed to recognize anything remotely familiar. The centerpiece of their community, and the grandest house of worship, had been profaned, from both the literal bones and blood of sacrifices to a foreign god, and from the corrupting influence of greed. What had once been a sprawling complex lit majestically via a series of golden lamps was now dark, decrepit, and debased. For the last seven years, the people of Jerusalem had fought to restore their faith and their identities, which had not just been stolen from them, but purchased. The takeover of Jerusalem had started out as a conspiracy, an intricate power play by a callous emperor and a scheming priest, who wasn't so much interested in leading his people, but accumulating power and wealth. Like the flame in the temple, faith and harmony had been extinguished, almost overnight. But in the shadow of tyranny, a resistance gathered on the outskirts in the countryside of Judea. Now, not all of their kind supported them. There were many citizens of Jerusalem who were perfectly content to forgo their culture and religion in exchange for protections under the encroaching empire. When the Maccabees took the city, often employing guerrilla warfare tactics, they were going up against their own brethren, and all of the blood that had been shed in combat was for this one building, the second incarnation of the temple, which embodied Jewish faith and served as a direct spiritual line to God. So the Maccabees got the temple back, but they still had to light up a giant open building. Being that this was almost a millennium away from lighting technology, the options back in the day were slim, to say the least. Wood burned far too quickly to sustain illumination for a prolonged period of time. Back then, your best option was to use fat or oil in a portable lamp. Think Aladdin, which provided a slower burn and therefore a longer light duration. In Judeo-religious contexts, this oil had to be consecrated and blessed, and there was usually a week-long production time that involved pressing, extracting, and, of course, blessing. When the Syrians, or Seleucids, plundered the temple during the invasion, they immediately took away the golden lamps and any other treasures they could find, so there were very little resources and options at the Maccabees' disposal. During the Restoration, the rebels had wisely chosen to recreate a heretofore lost symbol of their faith, the menorah, a large, seven-pronged oil lamp whose construction was said to have been dictated by God to Moses during the years of Exodus. The menorah had served as the principal light source inside the first Jewish temple, so the Maccabean artisans crafted a new menorah, according to scripture, and placed inside the newly consecrated Temple 2.0. There was just one little problem, lighting it up. Since the temple was a ransacked mess, the Maccabees could only find one sealed tiny jar of consecrated oil that hadn't been tapped by the occupation for their sacrifices. 
By estimate, there was only enough oil to light the menorah for one day, if that, which wasn't enough time to light the place up and press new holy oil. But here's where the miracles come in. Turns out, the little pot of oil that could went on to feed the flames of the menorah for, you guessed it, eight crazy nights, which was just enough time to start up oil production again. To commemorate the restoration of the temple and this spiritual thumbs up from God that the kids were doing all right, the Maccabees threw a feast day of celebration, yet another historical example that the Jews always know how to party. This day of victory would go on to become one of the most widely recognized holidays in the Jewish faith. Hanukkah. You have to huh when you say it. The Festival of Lights is traditionally celebrated with eight consecutive days of feasting, wherein an appointed member of the family lights a new candle of the family menorah each night until all nine are lit on the final eighth day. For that reason, the menorah is the primary symbol of Hanukkah. Now, the menorah that is usually brought out before dinner is a little different than the one that was in the temple. Since trying to replicate the real deal is considered a bit of a faux pas against the memory and significance of the original temple, the Hanukkah menorah has nine candles instead of seven, with the central servant candle used to light the other eight. So for such a venerated and important object, what exactly happened to the original? Well, gather round, kinder, cause Booby's got a story for you. Talmudic, oral, and historical records make mention of two different distinct menorah. According to the book of Exodus, God revealed the designs for the menorah while the Hebrews were in the process of fleeing Egypt and searching for the promised land. A lot of desert. Some readings of the scripture cite the metalsmith Betzalel as having taken the specifications from Moses and crafted the menorah out of a solid chunk of beaten gold. It was designed with seven prongs and adorned to look like an almond tree, complete with flowers. In fact, in Aramaic, the word for almond and the word for light are identical. In the interest of translating ancient measurements into metric and imperial, I'm just going to say that the menorah was about the height of an average dude around the time, so roughly person-sized. It was originally installed in the tabernacle, the portable temple, think a big holy tent, used when the old Hebrews were wandering in the desert. Being that a lot of this information comes to us by way of oral history and a 2,000-year-old scripture, the whereabouts and moving of the first menorah eventually get a little bit murky. To be fair, a lot of Talmudic attention is placed on the movements of the Ark of the Covenant, kind of important. But we know something is amiss when we start hearing about King Solomon's temple, which is recorded as having been illuminated by 10 lampstands without any mention of the menorah. All of this speculation becomes a moot point anyway when the Babylonians invade and sack Jerusalem in 587 BC. But again, it is said that they only plundered individual lamps, not a single source of light. So where does that leave Menorah Uno? 
Apocryphal oral tradition tells of divine intercession when an angel descended from the heavens and buried the menorah and other relics in a hidden chamber beneath the earth. Allegedly, this chamber will be uncovered during the fated construction of a third Jewish temple. So, we got a bit of a weight on our hands. Eventually, another menorah was built that had more staying power. But before we get there, let's fast forward to 170 BC. During this time period, the territory of Jewish centralized power, Judea, is caught between two sprawling empires. Alexander the Great, who had conquered most of the Eurasian world by 19 and died at 32, had fallen, leaving the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt and the Syrian Seleucid Empire vying for domination. The Ptolemies were not exactly like the ancients we often think of when we picture dynastic Egypt. They were heavily influenced by the Hellenic Greeks by way of Alexander's global conquest. In fact, at the time of Cleopatra's rule, the pyramids were already almost 2,600 years old, if that helps put all of this into perspective. Now, you may not know this, but history has, by and large, not exactly treated the Jewish people with a tremendous degree of respect. The Ptolemaic Empire wasn't completely on board with the Hebrews, but they were largely more tolerable than anybody else at the time. You'll recall that the Jews had a messy relationship with Egypt. There's this whole book that mentions that. Um, but a good chunk of the Jews realized they had a good thing going on with the new empire, and they tried to fit in as best as they could. These pro-Greek assimilating Jews were largely from the Tobiad tribal lineage, and not everybody agreed with them trying to sacrifice the Jewish identity and religion for a better shot at livelihood. Regardless, none of this mattered when the Seleucids came marching into town and started ripping apart the Ptolemaic world. Now, as I said, the Hellenics, for the most part, kind of got what the Jews were about and let them do their own thing as long as they didn't cause any upset to the status quo. But the Seleucids didn't get it, and quite frankly, they didn't care. Seleucids such as Emperor Antiochus IV Epiphanes. At the time, Jerusalem, which was smack dab in the middle of all this important territory being fought over, was spiritually presided over by the temple high priest Onias III. Now, that's not just any temple, but THE temple, the central power point for the Jewish faith. And the high priest, to simplify things, would be analogous to the Catholic Pope. So, very important dude. Important, that is, for everyone except his own actual brother, Jason, who schemed to overthrow his brother by flattering and bribing Emperor Antiochus. Shades of King John, anyone? Antiochus bucked centuries of holy tradition and appointed Jason as the new high priest instead, which scandalized the Jewish world, as the office of the high priest was by divine selection alone, not some schmuck who just got into town throwing money all over the place. To piss everyone off even more, Jason went full steam ahead with that whole Hellenizing everything deal, erecting coliseums and gymnasiums and popularizing all that Greek stuff. Feta. So much feta. In the end, karma came for Jason, who had already opened the floodgates by proving to his people that the position of high priest could be bought simply by greasing the right palms. In comes a big shot named Menelaus, who ponies up more cash and effectively buys out Jason from his position as high priest. And just to drive the point home, he has Onias III assassinated. 
but here's where the drama starts in earnest. Turns out Menelaus had cash, but he'd promised Antiochus way much more during his outbidding of Jason. This was cash he simply didn't have, by the way. But since he was now director of a whole giant building filled with priceless loot, he decided to help himself to centuries of religious artifacts. And then his brother Lysimachus goes and uses the temple as a crash pad, likewise helping himself to the temple reliquary to pay off a few debts. This being a close community, word gets out, and the already angered Jewish populace riots. Lysimachus is quite literally ripped to shreds in the middle of the street, and then the people accuse Menelaus of corruption and abuses of power. But if we know anything about greedy blowhards who cheat and buy their way to the top, they don't exactly have that whole internalization and self-reflection thing going on. So naturally, Menelaus blames everyone but himself and bribes his way out of another situation, giving heaps of gold to Antiochus and convincing him that the mean old Jews were in league with the scheming Egyptians, because that makes sense. Antiochus puts several leaders of the rebellion to death because of it, despite the fact that they had proof that Menelaus was the worst. Fake news for fake Jews. But all the while, Jason has been biding his time and cannot let this slight go unpunished. When compared with Menelaus, he also now seems like the lesser of two evils. So Menelaus, riding high from worming his way out of having his wrongdoings punished, finally gets his comeuppance when Jason leads a small army into the temple and forces Menelaus to go crying back to Emperor. At this point, Emperor Antiochus has had enough. He doesn't even care about the temple or its significance. And the battle for control over the Jewish holy ground has now caused his subjects to rebel against him and his edicts. So he decides to take off the kid gloves and flat out massacres the people of Jerusalem altogether, at which point he completely converts it into a Hellenic annex city. And right by his side, Menelaus, of course. Almost overnight, Jerusalem gets a big fat Greek makeover and becomes known as the Palace of Antioch. Here's where things get messier because not every Jew was against this Hellenic assimilation. Remember, the Tobiads wanted the perks that came with Greek life. So you've got the traditional Jews in the countryside who want to make Jerusalem great again, and the Jews in the city who are a-okay with bringing in the heroes and baklava, but effectively going against their own self-interest and livelihood. Sounds kind of familiar, right? So Judaism is effectively outlawed, and the temple is converted into a temple to Zeus. Everyone's miserable and hates each other. The bad guys have won, and the Emperor has taken over. It's the end of Revenge of the Sith, basically. But then comes along a new hope. Rebellion, of course, being inevitable. Though Judaism was now prohibited, pretty much all of history tells us that when you ban things like oh, alcohol or people's religion, they're gonna get just really sneaky about doing it under the nose of authority. And among the disenfranchised is a priest named Matathias, or Matahayu, who's got five sons, Hyokanan, Simeon, Eleazar, Jonathan, and Judah. And they're all strapping lads who are mad as hell and aren't going to take it anymore. Matathias, despite being a priest, is also a badass, and he outright slaughters one of his fellow Jews who had decided to betray the religion and sacrifice to Zeus. Then the priest goes on to kill a Greek public servant, and this is what ignites the flames of rebellion. Mattathias and his sons begin to form a mass resistance, and when he dies, his son Judah takes over. Judah ends up taking on the moniker Judah the Hammer, 
So total WWE face material, right? He's big and strong and Jewish and rolling all these schlubs. Basically, total future husband material. By the way, Hammer in Aramaic is Machaba, and from this we get the name of the Rebel Alliance, the Maccabees. Knowledge! The Maccabees go on to wreck everybody's sh** because, turns out, you can't just take away people's religion and expect them to be cool with it. On the 25th of the month of Kislev, roughly November-December in the Gregorian calendar, in 165 BC, the Maccabees drive the Seleucids out of Jerusalem. As for Menelaus, he was still, of course, the high priest at the time of the Seleucid downfall. But there was a new emperor in town, Antiochus's son, Antiochus V, who decided that trying to keep Jerusalem just wasn't worth the time, money, and energy, and he went on to forge a truce with the Jews, after which he packed up and went home. But Antiochus No. 5 also wanted to execute the jerk who had started the whole kerfuffle in the first place. He blamed Menelaus and his scheming for igniting the rebellion, which was kind of true to be honest. So he had him slaughtered, at last dead. Finally, the people had their temple back, though it's now all gross and pagany. Good brother Jonathan is chosen as the new high priest, leads a new consecration and restoration of the Jewish temple, and this means reintroducing the old rituals. So bring in the noise, bring in the menorah. And there you have it, the tale of Hanukkah as told by its most traditional storyteller, a goyim with a podcast who gets most of his research from Wikipedia and the Rugrats Hanukkah special. But our tale doesn't end here. A reading of the Torah offers no conclusions as to what happened to the second menorah. Instead, both the fate of Jerusalem and the menorah comes to us from the renowned Roman Jewish historian Titus Flavius Josephus, also known by his gang name as Yosef ben Matayahu. He is usually depicted as having a formidable beard and an amazing hat, so obviously the most credible source of knowledge when it comes to turn of the millennium Jerusalem. Josephus was a soldier who was captured by the Romans, and then managed to win over Emperor Vespasian, who kept the scholarly soldier first as a slave, and then, after officially adopting him into his family, granting him his freedom as a Roman citizen. Josephus had a front row seat to the Judeo-Roman War, and he was there when the temple fell. He witnessed the Romans extract the menorah from the holy place under the orders of Vespasian and his son Titus. The menorah was put on display in a grand victory parade, whereupon it was allegedly taken back to Rome. We don't even have to trust at his word alone, because the description of this exact event is literally set in stone. Along with several other artifacts, the menorah and the processional parade in question is depicted in an engraving on the Arch of Titus, which you can still see to this day along the Via Sacra in Rome, Italy. Records say that the menorah was installed in the Temple of Peace, but beyond this, that's where the trail goes cold. Depending on which historian you ask, the menorah was looted during the fall of Rome by way of the Vandals and brought back to Carthage. This would have been almost 600 years after the Roman conquest of Jerusalem. It may have then switched imperial hands again when the Byzantines took over, and there was yet again a triumphal parade with enough witnesses to attest to this fact. Maybe. We now come to my favorite part of the episode. Theories, special Hanukkah edition. First, the more out there theory. Remember that the Romans were the ones who plundered Jerusalem. 
And as anybody with a cursory knowledge of geography and religion is aware, Rome eventually became the epicenter of Catholicism. The administration of such a widespread faith warranted the Vatican becoming its own municipality, Vatican City, which is now considered the smallest nation in the world. The Vatican is known for its massive collections of priceless art and artifacts, as well as some shadier, spookier things. Namely, the vaults and secret libraries of the Vatican, which are said to hold... Well, we don't really know what they hold, but it sure as hell lights the fire under at least 18 different conspiracy theories. Holy Grail, Necronomicon, Jimmy Hoffa, anything of dubious existence is purported to exist in these hidden chambers. It stands to reason that certain extremely important relics from the Golden Age of Judean rule might have found their way to the Vatican's basement. In 1996, Israel dispatched its Minister of Religious Affairs to the Vatican in the hopes of striking an agreement to return any sacred objects important to the Jewish faith. Oh, menorah. <clears throat> the request allegedly made the Vatican authorities very uncomfortable, almost as if they were hiding something. Then, in 2004, the Israeli Antiquities Authority was allowed entry into the Vatican storerooms to inspect it for themselves, but they didn't find no menorah. This should have put the conspiracy theory to bed, but the tinfoil yarmulke crowd just assumed that the Vatican had hidden the goods from prying eyes. Believe it or not, this conspiracy theory is a relatively modern phenomenon that stems from ostensibly valid concerns. Partially, it comes from that whole the Vatican taking Hitler's side during World War II kind of thing, which may have rubbed most Jewish people the wrong way. Though the Catholic Church tried their best to improve relations during the aftermath of the war, a good number of Jews were already suspicious, and this sudden buddy-buddy shift only further to sour this bad taste in their mouths. Clearly, the Vatican had to be hiding something of value. The most ardent supporters of this theory claimed that there was evidence hiding in plain sight, such as the menorah being depicted in a fresco inside of one of the Vatican's main apartments as if putting a picture on a wall automatically means said object is located somewhere on the premises. Oh, and here's the thing about that forbidden library. While there's no doubt that the Vatican is complicit in some very shady dealings, the stories of the archives are often exaggerated. Officially, all records are open to people with proper credentials, but certain sections are reserved purely for administrators and employees. Of course, that's what they want you to think. A variant on the Vatican has it theory diverges slightly from underground libraries to just underground. Before there was Marco Polo, there lived a Spanish Jewish explorer named Benjamin of Tudela, who visited Rome sometime in the 12th century. He writes about his talks with the Jews of Rome, who believed that the menorah, as well as other priceless vessels of the fallen temple, were hidden in the catacombs of St. John the Lateran. In fact, many olden-day Jewish philosophers and scholars believed that Tudela's accounts were credible. Still, this is all essentially hearsay. Historians of the Roman Empire have a more pragmatic outlook on the whereabouts of the Temple Menorah. Edward Gibbon, author of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, writes that the Vandals did take the menorah and other temple relics out of Rome during its destruction and then subsequently lost it at sea during a violent storm. This would place the menorah at the bottom of the Mediterranean, 
anywhere between North Africa and Italy. Good luck with the search! Then, there are some people who think that the menorah actually made it back home, at least for a time. The Byzantine chronicler Procopius of Caesarea believed that the menorah and its accompanying treasures were sent back to Jerusalem by the Byzantines, who feared holding on to them. The reason why? Well, they took a good look at the last 800 years of fallen empires and realized there was one thing in common with all of their declines. Every empire who had stolen the relics of the Jewish temple was eventually invaded and destroyed. The Byzantines thought to undo the curse by returning the treasure to their original home. But their actions may have only bought them a little bit more time, or a lot actually, as the Byzantine Empire fully dissolved during the conquest of Constantinople in 1453. The menorah may not even have lasted this long anyway, as some believe it was destroyed during the Persian pillaging of Jerusalem in 614. It may have been melted down into gold. And there you have it, folks. I could end this episode with a profound, sweeping monologue on tradition, or how the menorah being absent does not mean that the light and flames of faith have been extinguished, or that the menorah of the temple lives on in each individual menorah put out during Hanukkah. But instead, I'm just going to say, eat some latkes, spin some dreidels, win some gelt, have a fantastic festival of lights. Shalom, y'all. To life, to life, lechaim. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. If you like this podcast and want to do a mitzvah, you can leave a four or five star rating on iTunes so other people can find out about it. You can also connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or especially for this episode, corrections, please send me an email at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's Blueberry without the E. Our Facebook group is The Reliquary, the Lost Treasure Podcast group. Next time, it's ho-ho hijinks when a bunch of wacky Italians decide to cash in on religious fervor by jetting off to Turkey and stealing the bones of a certain jolly saint. It's our Christmas special and the final episode of the year. The adventure continues. For that reason, the menorah is the primary symbol of Hanukkah. <laughs>